I've seen um, a lot of the impact of COVID-19 in my own personal life. I've had both family and friends who have died. I remember when a tribal leader, a mentor, a friend, he passed away and I was sitting on the couch in my house, you know, tears running down my face. And I thought about it. And I know that he was also eliminated in the data. There's no way they captured him as a native man. And he even lost that dignity to tell his last story in the data. And it was devastating. That's Abigail Echo Hawk, Chief Research Officer at Seattle Indian Health Board and the Director of the Urban Indian Health Institute. Carrying the torch for her community, Abigail's mission alongside the UIHI is to decolonize data for Indigenous people by Indigenous people. Abigail directs a team of researchers, evaluators, and epidemiologists dedicated to restoring Indigenous scientific knowledge systems. She's a true agent of change. Despite all of that tragedy, as Indigenous peoples, we are strong, resilient people, and we have had the ability to take actions. And I've been so proud to see my community leading. We were the very first to have masking orders and comply. We were the first for stay-at-home orders. And now we are leading the country in vaccinations. I'm Justin Beck, founder and CEO of Contact World. I'm here with my co-hosts, Catherine Delson and Deepti Pava. And over the coming months, we'll be talking to scientists, researchers, celebrities, experts, anyone who's been affected by COVID, and getting to the bottom of how we can improve public health together. We may not have all the answers, but you deserve to understand what goes on in your neighborhood and the decisions that will affect you and your family's health. Welcome back, everyone, to Contact World Truth and Health. So today we're talking to Abigail Echo Hawk. And one of the things that, you know, really struck me is we forget about the history of the oppression of American Indians and Alaskan Natives in this country. And I also think that it's a system that we have designed to continue to oppress data. She actually uses the term data genocide, which is a really powerful term. I'm curious to know what you think about the things that have happened to the American Indian community broadly in the United States. Just in hearing her and also, you know, there was one of the reports that I was reading that said that CDC's race data in December, according to that, 14 states show that COVID-19 mortality among American Indian and Alaska natives was 1.8 times higher than the white people. Indigenous people must feel invisible. Health equity in my opinion, cannot be achieved until and unless we have this complete and transparent data collection and the disaggregation of data. But that's also to do with the fact who is the one who is responsible for deciding what data to be collected, right? That's exactly the oppression that you're talking about. And the scope of the data collection is inherently about the funder's interest or the state's interest or the people who are making policy their interest. But the community-level interests and needs are often not at all taken care of. Catherine, I would love to hear what you have to say about it. I appreciate what you said about them being invisible, but I think it's more of them being ignored on top of being invisible. There's a deliberateness, I think, to the policies and things that we're doing. They're not being fairly represented. I mean, 
it becomes an afterthought, which it should be at the forefront. I think a lot of times when we think of minority groups, and maybe not intentionally, we don't include them as part of the oppressed minority groups that are not being represented, that are not being given a voice or being adequately protected. It's a long history, and we can make strides to acknowledge where we are and take actual steps to remedy those effects in the long term. I think you're right. And I hate to say it, but I think it's pretty deliberate. What we're seeing is the continued oppression of a people that have been oppressed since people colonized this country. And unfortunately, it takes a complete change in the way that we're doing things to fix this. Because If the data doesn't exist, then people can't highlight the issues that affect them. We need to change the way that we collect data nationally. We need to define multi-ethnic groups and making sure that we're not just checking other and things like that. And we also need to inform people why that's important. Because I think that sometimes people get afraid of sharing information thinking that it's for the wrong reasons, when in reality... This data we're trying to collect is actually to empower and shed a light on the racial disparities that exist in this country. I agree with both of you guys, and you're really bringing a very interesting perspective again of the same things that we kind of talk about every time, which is building trust, right? And how do you build trust in a system where people have been oppressed for so long? And also, Justin, you bring a very interesting perspective on how to solve for this, right? And there are various ways that we can actually think about. We don't have to always depend on government for this. This is my personal opinion. There are other ways like having an open data initiative that publishes aggregate data sets, right? Or building capacity for researchers, administrators, community participants to work together on equity data collection, building data literacy among community members and engage them through public activities like like community-based participatory research actions. And also at the policy level, I know that's a tough one to get into, but definitely help mandate data collection for minorities at a very granular level and really have population-based strategies and communications. I think all of these things are missing. There is a way to implement a lot of these things, even without going at the national and federal level, but getting support from organizations and communities who are willing to invest in this kind of data collection. We're joining the Health Equity Tracker Project at Satcher Health Leadership Institute. And to your point, Deep D, with the Health Equity Tracker Project, you know, starting with a mission to reduce health disparities by shedding light on data, really there are things that we can do as a private company. For instance, with Smart Health RM that we're deploying to health agencies, we're actually using the standards by which the Health Equity Tracker Project recommends us to identify and report data to them so that we can be part of the solution. Because the reality is, the reason we're here is because some government has designed it in a way to oppress the data. So we have to create systems as a private company that will help aid in the collection of this data if the government continues to fail to do so. Right. And there are companies that I'm aware of who are actively seeking minority participation in research They try to offer some type of compensation, and it goes back to what Deepti was saying about trust. There are initiatives out there. They are taking that step of how do we mend the gap? How do we get these people to be adequately represented and have their data information available? Yeah, I agree. So I think the concept of vaccine tracking is really interesting because 
on one hand, our motivation as a government and our country is really just trying to get shots in arms, right? And we also know that there are not a lot of standards by which data is being tracked on vaccinations. But we also know that going forward, there's going to be some serious ethical questions and there's going to be some serious issues surrounding, okay, how do we reintegrate normalcy? How do we get back to work? How do we get back to commerce and you know everything that that entails? One of the things that we're going to do is we're going to be validating whether people have been vaccinated or not. And there's going to have to be infrastructure for that. There are issues of equity though, because we can't do that too soon because we know that not enough people have had access to vaccine. We also need to make sure that when we do things like that, that we can't exacerbate existing equity issues. Because if people, for one reason or another, haven't had access to vaccine, then we're making a problem worse. So what do you think about how we're going to validate vaccines equitably? My personal opinion is that it needs to be done for sure. But at the same time, while vaccination is being done as in terms of distribution, we have to make extra efforts at this point in time to make sure that those communities are reached and are getting in the line for vaccines. And I think we did cover this in our last podcast with Dr. Brown, where we talked about, you know, having those community health workers to go to these places and get them informed and get them on board for vaccination. At the same time, the second part of it is that when you were talking about how that would be actually converted into a vaccine passport, right? In the US, people are talking about it. And in EU, they've moved ahead with plans for vaccine passports as well. Internationally, Israel, Saudi Arabia, Iceland, all of these places have actually started integrating technological vaccine passports. We need to design for a hybrid system where we cannot just depend on technology as vaccine passport systems. That's how I think about it. But there is definitely no right or wrong way to do it because we do not know what we do not know yet. It has to still come and it has to still unfold. Yeah, I think the legal implications are scary. I think there are lots of complications in how this is done. I understand Justin's point about if people want to participate in the economy, but if you're going to exclude someone, then it has to be because they've had access to the vaccine readily and they, for whatever reason, absent or religious or other suitable reasons that are valid, they decline to take it. If they're not having access and then we're declining, we're saying, as they've just announced, if you've taken the vaccine, you can now congregate with others who have taken the vaccine without a mask. So it, that's like a small step of having certain privileges for people who are vaccinated that others who are not are not going to get. So it's going to be interesting to see how it unfolds. And I think there's going to be lawsuits. There's going to be protesting. And hopefully we come out on the right side of this. I think we need policies that are sensitive to the needs of the minorities, of the people who really don't have access. Justin, I understand we're going to hear from two people from the American Indian community. Can you tell us who we're going to hear from next and what to expect? Yes, we're going to hear from Abigail first. As I mentioned in my introduction, Abigail is a force to be reckoned with, full of passion and pride with a laser focus on helping and elevating her community. I'm excited for everyone to hear what she has to share.
So we really appreciate the opportunity to have you here today. Can you tell us more about the Urban Indian Health Institute and your role there? So I'm Abigail Echohawk. I'm an enrolled citizen of the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma, and I am the director of the Urban Indian Health Institute. The Urban Indian Health Institute is one of 12 tribal epidemiology centers located across the country. The other 11 focus on regional areas where there are federally recognized tribes and UIHI, as we call it, is a little bit unique in that we are focused on the urban dwelling American Indian Alaska Native population, which currently represents about 70% of all Native people live off reservation and tribal lands in large urban settings across the United States. And we work to ensure that they are represented in data, in research, evaluation, and right now, as we're in the midst of COVID-19, we are fighting to ensure that they're recognized and our data is being captured about the impact of COVID-19 and other kinds of diseases and viruses as they sweep across this nation. You just released a report called Data Genocide of American Indians and Alaska Natives in COVID-19 Data. What did you and your colleagues learn from that experience and that publication? I always get those words are so harsh, data genocide. And I tell people, yeah, it's really harsh because we are experiencing a genocide right now. In the data, what we have found is that American Indian and Alaska Natives are never represented. We're either nobody captures our information or there's this cute little asterisk underneath a data chart that will say not statistically significant. And as a result of that, the resources that we have a right to through our treaties, our agreements with the United States governments, we are getting the resources we're supposed to as a result of being eliminated in this data. And this isn't just happening in COVID-19 data. This has been happening for years. So I've been calling it a data genocide for more than 20 years. But now as we have the impact of COVID-19, we have seen an even deeper result of that. So what we learned is that more than half the states in the nation are doing a terrible job on capturing and reporting American Indian Alaska Native data in COVID case studies. So these are the reports of people who have been infected with COVID-19. And this information means that when we go to the federal government, when we're working with our states and our counties, and we say there are Native people dying, there are Native people who are being infected at higher rates, they say to us, well, where's your data? And they're not directing the resources that we need. By eliminating us in the data, they're actually increasing the disproportionate impact that COVID is having in our communities. So, for example, the state of Texas is the worst. They scored about a 20%, the worst in the nation, where they have a large urban Indian community. And they also have state and federally recognized tribes in the state of Texas. That is a huge impact on those communities. And so by not reporting us in the data, they are effectively perpetuating the genocide that started 500 years ago is happening today and we're seeing it in the data. I really appreciate the powerful words that you're using because sometimes you you need to get people's attention. And COVID-19 has been the great revealer of disparities in our country. Now, some people, you know, including maybe by your terminology of data genocide, have called you a troublemaker. And I like and admire that. What inspires you as an individual? Well, I both appreciate being called a troublemaker and also wish that when you make trouble, it wasn't seen as trouble. People should see me as a justice seeker. And that's what I want. I want justice for my community. I want our babies to live. I want our elders to have fulfilling full lives so they can share their rich information and traditions with our communities. And that's what inspires me. I come from a long generations of ancestors who fought so that 
I could thrive in the environment that I'm in right now. And so I'm inspired by my relatives, by my aunties, by my mother, by my grandmothers. And I know I have a responsibility to my community. And we're seeing that in COVID-19, not just not with myself, but our community as a whole. As Native people, we are raised to understand that we are individuals who have a responsibility to contribute to our whole community. That's what public health is. So when we talked about masking mandates and getting people to do stay-at-home quarantine orders, tribal communities did it before any other communities in this United States because we knew we had a responsibility to protect our next generations and our elders. That's the incredible legacy I come from. Generations of people who survived so that I could thrive so I could contribute to the next generations. And I see my responsibility to be a good ancestor for those next generations. Your report on data genocide talks about a need to improve public health surveillance data. How do we ensure that politicians actually take aggressive steps to do the things that you're proposing? Because in my experience, and I'm not from public health, I've seen that public health folks want improved health surveillance systems, but unfortunately, they're often not the ones making the decisions. So how do we bridge that gap? Communities elected these politicians. They have a responsibility to fulfill the needs of their constituents, the people that elected them. And if they're going to do that, they have to make sure the resources that they need in COVID-19 and pretty much everything is represented. However, there are some groups who don't have the same political power. Native people, like the people I am blessed to be a part of, we're a small population in this country because of genocide and now ongoing genocide. And so we don't always have the political power to push those politicians to make the right decisions. And that's where we rely on the rest of the country acknowledging that the health of a Native person impacts the health of the person sitting next to them on the bus, in the office next to them, when their kids school. It's all of our health. And so these politicians need to be working to understand their constituents. And that means we have to talk to them. Sometimes we got to yell at them. Sometimes it's an email. Sometimes it's a phone call. But we as citizens of this country have to be actively engaged in this process and ensuring that our folks know those who are supposed to represent us truly are. And if you don't think they are, tell them. That makes a lot of sense. Do you feel like we are starting to make any progress in health equity in this country? And how do we continue the momentum? The momentum we're seeing is the recognition that there are disparities that exist. We know that the African-American community, the Latinx community, the Native community are being disproportionately hit by COVID-19 and the impacts of these health disparities cannot be ignored anymore. And so we're seeing that it's being recognized that, yes, these people are dying. They are in desperate circumstances. And how did that happen? So we're starting to have these conversations and these conversations have to continue and they can't stop with just the recognition. So that's what I'm afraid of. Be like, everybody says, oh, yes, it's happening. I was like, well, you could have come to me 20 years ago and I would have told you the exact <laughs> same thing I'm telling you now. Yeah. What are you going to do about it? Right. And so that focuses on individual communities, looking at how you can volunteer, where you can donate, how you can assist, how you can look at yourself and be like, hey, I'm not actually part of any people of color communities. Why is that? Acknowledging our own participation in systems that have marginalized and created these health disparities. And we also need to work just like we were talking about earlier with our policymakers, you know, push them to do what is right. There is possibilities with this momentum and I see hope, but I am also hesitant because I need to see more than just a conversation. We have to see action. My people are dying. 
Yeah. So, I mean, looking at President Biden's recent executive orders, he's actually making several mandates that we finally improve public health infrastructure. And coming from, you know, outside of public health, I was just so pissed off at the lack of funding that our public health infrastructure has seen. And I see disparities between public health funding and provider care funding. And I always think, like, how is it that we're surprised that we're in this position if we're actually tasking public health agencies to keep us safe, but we're not giving them any money? So I'm really anxious to see, and I'm also scared that we're not going to see the politicians implement the things that are coming from the top. I mean, I'm at least encouraged that we're starting to see a little bit of traction, but I have the same fears. What are we going to do about it? You know, I think for a lot of folks, they didn't really understand what public health was for most of the nation until COVID hit. I'm a Native person. I was raised in a public health community. My parents fed everybody. They took people to doctor's appointments. My dad, I would say like, he was the first tiny house builder. He built all these little tiny places for people to live on the property in which I was raised on. That's public health. That's taking care of a community, recognizing we have a responsibility to everybody. That's what public health is. It looks at the health of the population. People didn't even know what it was. And as a result of that, we saw the chronic underfunding of public health systems. The infrastructure around data, where I talk about the data genocide, I've been saying this for 20 plus years, as have many, many other people. But because nobody really cared about public health, we hadn't seen a pandemic since, you know, 1915 people kind of ignored it. And now it cannot be ignored anymore. This is not going to be the last pandemic this country experienced or this world experiences. How are we going to ensure this infrastructure is put in place? So folks like myself, the work that I've done for my native community, I've been juggling little tiny pieces of scarce resources to do the best I can to halt the deaths and the infections in my community. I shouldn't have to do that. That should be this country's priority to stop the death of its citizens. But until we see the full funding of public health, it's not going to. Right. And then one of the things that I think it's really complicated, but when we talk about public health surveillance and when you think about people, you know, may not be as familiar with public health and what that means. And you also talked about participation in the system. I feel like we have an educational process to go through where people need to understand that public health surveillance is actually intended to provide them the resources because if we don't have data on the disproportionate effects of disease, politicians are going to try to avoid the problem. So I feel like there's a practical gap where people sometimes say, oh my gosh, I'm afraid that the government is spying on me and I don't want to give any of my information. How do we resolve that? Yeah, um, I feel like before COVID-19, when I would say I direct an epidemiology center, people, their eyes would <laughs> kind of cross and they'd be like, what's epidemiology? <laughs> yeah. And then I'd have to go in this long explanation. Now, I feel like most of the country, you say epidemiology, and they're like, oh, your job is so important. I'm like, yeah, it was important 20 years ago. So we're seeing more of a bridged understanding of what this is. You know, an epidemiology is looking at diseases over time. You need to look at what happens over time. So as we look at what's happening right now with COVID-19, we were looking at a month-to-month -month basis. Now we're getting to having a year's worth of information. And that's where we're seeing the disproportionate impacts on communities of color, where deaths and infections are much higher, being hospitalized is much higher, all of those things. And we wouldn't have it without these surveillance systems. And policymakers and those who are directing resources, if they don't have this information, we're not going to end this pandemic. We need this information to target 
where resources need to go so we can end this pandemic. So yes, you know, it sounds really scary, um, but I think now that people are getting an understanding of we need this information to end this pandemic. Hey, I also need this information to end diabetes, to end cancer, to end heart disease. It encompasses everything. This is a little bit out there, but we have certain types of people that use this whole privacy excuse and, oh gosh, my personal privacy. But it's almost like you're using your phone for 25 different things at any time and you can order food in 20 minutes. And you want to tell me that you're afraid that your public health officials, who are the last people in the world that want to use your information for something nefarious, they shouldn't have access to your information. (laughs) It's, It's crazy. It's exactly. It is kind of funny when you think about it that way. And also, you know, for people to know, there's a lot of regulations about how we can use the data. There's more regulations for me than Facebook has, okay? We have so many regulations and they're necessary, needed, and we follow every single one of them. Again, our whole goal is improve the health and well-being of all people. I look at and work with Native people because we do experience some of the worst health disparities. And when we improve and have better health in the Native community, your whole community has better health. So that's our goal with public health, again, is how do we have a healthy, well community of thriving people across this country? You say equity will not be achieved in COVID-19 response or vaccinations until public health surveillance systems properly collect and report race and ethnicity. One of the other things I've been surprised about is that there's no connection between provider care and public health agencies. It's something that Contact World is looking to innovate. But I also think that we have this crisis and this fire drill. I hope that we can continue to innovate and we can actually take steps to do that because one thing is to make a mandate to improve public health systems. But I think that there's another thing in that you're actually trying to incorporate the source of the information. Like how do we connect the data from healthcare providers to public health agencies? Yeah, that's a really big issue. And one of the problems is is there's not any real official mandate. So let's talk about vaccinations like you were just talking about. I'm deep in the vaccination world and the clinic I'm sitting in right now, I'm helping to direct our vaccination clinic, which I can see people outside lined up to go in and get their vaccinations. But we know a study came out of the CDC at the beginning of February that showed that 48.1% of all of the race and ethnicity data is missing from the CDC data that the states are reporting. It's missing, which means those people are missing. And one of the things we found with the data that exists is that the people who are most at risk to being put in the hospital, having major complications and of death are not the ones getting the vaccinations. The Trump administration really focused on how many vaccinations can we get out the door? My answer back is, it's not about how many arms you put them in. It's about what arms are you putting them in? It needs to go into the arms of people most at risk. And so when we talk about connecting with these providers and, you know, folks going into pharmacies who are getting, you know, Walgreens or CVS or whatever they're going, and then hospital systems, all of these folks need to have the same standards and the same accountability put into place that requires them to gather the information we need in order to end this pandemic. And that linkage right now doesn't exist and it's not happening. And as a result, this country is failing in getting people who need the vaccinations the most, the vaccine. 
Yeah. I think that we're wasting the opportunity to fix the problem too, because if we just had a mandate and some consistency across where we're putting these shots, I mean, we'd actually be in a better position to fix it next time. It's shocking. Right now I have a provider out with some of our homeless service providers and two of them will vaccinate about 15 people today in homeless encampments where they're the most at risk. If they were in our clinic, they could vaccinate hundred or more people. It's not about the number. It's about the impact when you vaccinate somebody who's been staying at home, works from home, orders in all their groceries, or you vaccinate somebody who's homeless, who is, you know, in the community and could get COVID or spread COVID or die from COVID. That's where we need to concentrate. And unfortunately, this country is doing a terrible job on making those equity-based decisions. I do like that there's a commitment that they're starting to send vaccine to community health centers and to sending them to, you know, pharmacies and hard hit communities. But the other thing I think we're missing is that if you're sending it to a hard hit community and the only way that people can register is if they have internet access and their computer proficient or whatever, that we're missing the point. I actually just got a, a note from somebody saying, hey, go to this place in this town and they're not checking anything. I'm like, I'm not going to go jump the line just because these companies don't have the right systems in place to equitably distribute vaccine. But it's just an example of like how messed this situation is. Yeah. And I've seen it. We actually had it happen in our clinic here when we opened up and we opened up sooner than the rest of the state of Washington to anybody over the age of 50 of any race or ethnicity. We are a federally qualified health center, community health center. We serve everybody. And what we found is really rich, wealthy people who have never stepped into our clinics before. We literally had people who shoved their way to the front and we had to call security because they felt that they should be prioritized over our current patients. And we're like, oh no, that is not how this works. It's embarrassing. It is embarrassing. Recently, I heard a story from Congresswoman Maxine Waters of California, and she was talking about going into the hard hit areas in California and seeing the exact same thing. And also all of these African-American elders who were not able to make scheduled appointments because they don't have the internet. They don't know how to work it on their mobile phones and they're not getting those resources. We also need some more morality in this country. We need people to recognize they are not the most important and they need to see that as a whole, we need to come and surround and protect those most at risk. And that's not the person who can stay at home, who can order Amazon in. It's those folks who don't have those same opportunities. So how do you think that we verify vaccinations and things like that in the future? You know, first of all, we have equity issues of distribution and access, but then I'm scared that we're going to have systems in place that actually require you to be vaccinated. And I think that it's a double-edged sword because I can understand the logic behind it, but I also can see the pitfalls of it. What do you think about how that's going to be done in the future where you're actually like going to an event, you know, the event might need to know that you're either tested or that you have been vaccinated? We're seeing some of these testing mandates already. Certain states, for example, Hawaii, when you fly in, you had to have had a test within the past three days to ensure that you're not currently infected with COVID-19. We're seeing things like that right now. When it comes to the vaccination, you know, this is going to have to be done very thoughtfully, if at all. For example, if we were to implement something like that at this moment in time, it is a majority of middle-class and upper white people who are vaccinated, which means you are going to create systems that oppress and marginalize and police people of color, which we have seen how that results, and it is not good. Making it worse. 
Exactly. And so these things cannot be done in the snap of a moment. It needs to be thought out very thoughtfully on whether or not it's even worth it. And instead, what we should really be concentrating on is vaccinating this country to the point of herd immunity. And herd immunity is where there's enough people vaccinated to where the virus does not spread and does not impact at the same level. And they're estimating that to be about in between 70 to 80% of the population needs vaccinated. But we need to get those who need it the most first and then look towards that. Herd immunity is where we want to be. And that opportunity, you know, kind of cancels out the show your vaccination card kind of thought that is happening everywhere. Right. You know, what are the silver linings to this experience from your perspective? I know that it's been a disaster and I know that there's a lot to be frustrated about. What gives you hope personally? I've seen um, a lot of the impact of COVID-19 in my own personal life. I've had both family and friends who have died. I remember when a tribal leader, a mentor, a friend, he passed away and I was sitting on the couch in my house, you know, tears running down my face. And I thought about it and I know what state he's from. And I know that he was also eliminated in the data. There's no way they captured him as a native man. And he even lost that dignity to tell his last story in the data. And it was devastating. And I know that my experience is not unique, that many other native people are experiencing the same thing. Despite all of that tragedy, As indigenous peoples, we are strong, resilient people, and we have had the ability to take actions. And I've been so proud to see my community leading. We were the very first to have masking orders and comply. We were the first for stay-at-home orders. And now we are leading the country in vaccinations. We are doing a better job of reaching Native people than any other place in the country. And in fact, there are communities, the Bay Mills community in Michigan, They have 50% of their adults who are eligible for vaccinations. More than 50% of them are vaccinated. We have villages in Alaska where they are completely vaccinated and they got that vaccination to them by snow machine and dog sled. We are seeing our communities come together and take those public health parts of us that were always part of us. We always took care of our communities and apply them. The rest of the country should be learning from us. So I see not only this piece of hope, but also the strength of my community and taking care of each other and seeing the rest of the country actually turning to us for the very first time, not because they think we have all the problems. They're coming to us because Native people have the answers right now. And that is a beautiful silver lining and also the elevation of public health to the rest of the country. We need them to acknowledge that the continuous support needs to be invested. And it's going to take this country saying we can no longer have this underfunding of public health systems. We want to do more than survive in the next pandemic. We need to be able to overcome it much more quickly than we did in COVID-19. Yeah, I have to say that I am humbled by the passion and the resolve of just public health professionals. And I mean, it grinds my gears to see the disrespect sometimes that public health professionals have seen and the way that we've underfunded public health and whatever I can do and our company can do to improve public health, we see it as this area to improve. I just can't believe the way that our country has treated the public health system for so long. Well, I appreciate all the support as public health professionals need it. And, you know, there are some public health professionals who, in the beginning of the pandemic, ended up having to quit their jobs because when they put these masking orders in place, people threatened them and threatened their children 
when all we're trying to do is protect our communities. And we saw what happened when people didn't follow through. So I am in gratitude to them and know that all public health professionals, we're taking a lot of risk right now. And we will continue to do so because the health of our community matters that much. Yeah, we've talked about how strange it is that our country, you know, rightfully so, celebrates its healthcare providers, but somehow our public health professionals get death threats. And it's just ridiculous. Yeah, I'll tell you just a quick story of my community here in Seattle. So I'm sitting in my office here at the Seattle Indian Health Board. And when COVID came, our folks who are out living outside without homes, they were experiencing a lot of people taking advantage of them and also of the increased stress and tragedy that was happening as a result of COVID-19. So our clinic is in an area where a lot of people are experiencing a lot of trauma. And as a result of that, we started to have a lot of gun violence. And so in the beginning of the pandemic, we are having outside of my window that I can look out right now, I was having numerous shootings that were happening six feet from me. And as a result of that, I had to move my team of some of the best epidemiologists in the country. We had to move all of our desks because we still come into work every day at our clinic. Of course you do. We had to move them away from the windows because I was afraid of my team getting shot. And so not I'm only concerned about them getting COVID, making sure we're getting out the resources to our community as a small community health program, doing work for people of color. And I was also having to worry about my staff getting shot and how far I was sitting away from my window. The stress that we've had to experience and that our community has had to experience as a result of COVID, particularly for public health professionals who are people of color, has definitely much higher than other people are experiencing. And so my poor team who had to do multiple evacuations as we had this gun violence outside of our windows, you know, they went right back to work 15 minutes after it was cleared and started to get to work to serve our community again. That's the dedication that exists, not only in my organization, but nationwide. So I, I want to go a little bit off topic before I let you go. We talked a lot about your other work, but can you talk about the Reclaiming Native Truth project that you've been involved with? Yeah, so a Reclaiming Native Truth was a project of Illuminative, one of the leading organizations in the country that is focused on bringing visibility of Indigenous peoples to the rest of the country. So Illuminative and the research study that was led by Dr. Stephanie Freiberg looked at and did research on what people knew about Native people in this country. And what we found is they didn't know a lot. <laughs> and in fact, there were a lot of people who didn't even know we were still alive. And so pretty disappointing, but not surprising. And Illuminative continues to focus on undoing this invisibility by making sure that we are represented in the media, that we're represented well in TV and radio and all of these things and are really focused on educating people on what it means for us to have modern Native people in this country. So people always ask me, did you grow up in a teepee? Or they find out I'm from Alaska <sighs> and like, was there an igloo? Yeah. It's like, no, there was a house with a yeah. kitchen and a bathroom and all of the things everybody else has. And I am blessed to have more than you had in that I had deep cultural traditions to also grow up in that have allowed my people to not only survive this pandemic, but to thrive. And so that's the kind of education that Reclaiming Native Truth and Illuminative have continued to do is raise the visibility of Native people so that we can have a great understanding of we are sitting next to you on the bus, we are your co-workers, we are your friends, and together we'll create a thriving community here in the United States. 
Well, I really appreciate all your time today. You're just such a powerful woman and an inspiration and I hope we can have you back sometime. Thanks for having me. It was so fun and I would love to come back. Throughout this series, Contact World Truth and Health, we featured many experts from the field of health equity, doctors, researchers, authors, all sharing a message that is often difficult yet necessary to hear. We've also shared stories of those directly impacted by these inequities, specifically during the pandemic. So it was such a nice moment to speak with our next guest, Sarah Anderson, an American Indian working on the front lines in Seattle, Washington. Sarah's message is one of resilience, and in spite of the injustices she and her community face, there is a collective sense of hope. My name is Sarah Stronghorse Anderson. I am an enrolled member of the Esalen Tribe of Monterey County. I am an employee of the Seattle Indian Health Board for over 10 years, and I work in patient care coordination. And the Seattle Indian Health Board is a federally qualified uh, community health center. It's a medical home. We serve everyone, all walks of life, all populations of patients, but we have a focus on American Indian Alaska Native. And a lot of our services are tailored to everyone, but are led in integration with traditional medicine and how you're looking at healthcare as a whole person versus just a system of medical, a system of dental, a system of behavioral health. So we have multiple departments, medical, dental, behavioral health, domestic violence advocation. Um, We have an elders department, youth programs. We have our Urban Indian Health Institute that collects data. And we just try to wrap around care for everyone that walks through our doors, but particularly focusing on American Indian and Alaska Native people and uplifting them in the urban communities. So traditional integrated medicine is robust, but it is simple. It is traditional medicine. It is sitting and listening and healing. It is looking into traditions that are practiced with all tribes and centering a way of caring for people in the way that they feel is connected to their cultural beliefs and tying that into medical care. So you may be looking at one health disparity and realizing that Westernized medicine is not everything that is going to service the care of that person. Their well-being requires medicine tied to their culture. And it's really beautiful because it is utilizing all of the resources our ancestors have always given us and then integrating those medicines to treat the whole self and improve those health outcomes in ways that standard Western medicine won't always tackle. But we're also trying to bring that traditional medicine to everyone in the safest way possible for people who don't understand, uh, share it with them in a good way. So I contracted COVID. I'm not entirely sure about my connection to getting sick, but it happened. And I live in a multi-generational household. I have my children, my family, but also my parents in my home. And working every day and thinking for others, I didn't necessarily pick up on the immediate cues because it was so new. And 
I wasn't immediately sick, but I went home, told my family, everyone was tested. And we found out not just myself, but my significant other, he was sick as well. And my mother and both of our children. So it became this frightening sensation of how do we self-contain in our home? How do we take care of ourselves and get better? What's to come of us? It was a whole field of emotions. I sadly, and my partner sadly, did get extremely sick. Difficulty breathing. We had respiratory functions that were much below standards. It was a true blessing to have the Seattle Indian Health Board in my corner. Traditional medicine was brought to my home. Tobacco was brought with a oxygen monitor. Traditional teas were brought that promote better respiratory functions. Salves and other medicines were brought to apply to our bodies to allow us to be uh, cleansed and blessed in a traditional way on top of the care that the providers were giving us. But the people that came into our home to check the vital statistics on my significant other, he had lost consciousness twice. He was barely breathing and they took a few vitals. Only one medic came in, the rest stayed outside of the home because they didn't want to be in a house with known exposure. And they chose to leave him there. And he lost consciousness two more times. And um, everyone in my household, my mother, my children, everyone was so confused as to why dad wasn't taken to the hospital by 911. It was hard to say, you know what? No, you're going because this is serious. It's hard to be in the healthcare field and to see that that really indeed happened. And I looked at it as my mission and my goal to not provide the care that was given in the hardest of times for my family, but only focus on the things that worked for us, that cared for us, that felt right, that really built us up and this care that we provide is is something that is so energizing and is so real and is so valuable I just wanted to get back out there and do it but it's true for me it's what kept me healthy it's what kept my mind my soul my body my spirit healthy and it's what I wanted to reciprocate and what I wanted to give back and what I wanted to share with Everyone that walks through the doors, American Indian, Alaskan Native, white, black, Asian, homeless, housed, and everything in between. It's something, it's something else completely. <laughs> so resiliency, yeah. I think it's in everything that we do. I think of my family. I think of being a third generation urban Indian. There have been hits to our people for hundreds and hundreds of years, and yet those teachings are in us, the deeply rooted and being able to understand that we've all been in a place where we have seen inequity, where we felt disparity, where we see darkness, we turn it into light. We start in a good way. We end in a good way. We speak in a good way. We listen to our elders. We watch strong indigenous people who are leading in our communities and we mirror that. And that is birth to death. You're always growing. You're always fighting and you're always 
lifting one another up in a good way. And it's a beautiful thing to be a part of and to be blessed with. It's deeper rooted and it's very hard for me to articulate. I mean, I feel like resilience kind of leads everything that I do always. And if it ever doesn't, I'm having a really bad day. (laughs) So all of that is very important to me every single day. As painful as it is to admit, our country was built upon slavery and pillaging indigenous people who still suffer, paving the way to the inequities and health disparities that we see today. It doesn't have to be this way anymore. On one hand, our system now deliberately eliminates the collection of real demographic data in healthcare, what Abigail Echo Hawk aptly refers to as data genocide. Then politicians cite a lack of data as if that proves that no disparities exist. I applaud Abigail for pursuing justice for her people. It's the reason some people call her a troublemaker. As the late, great John Lewis said, sometimes we need to get in good trouble necessary trouble. We need to do more for American Indians and Alaska Natives, and politicians need to stop insulting our intelligence about why certain data doesn't exist. It's time to start fixing this system and facing reality. Let's improve health equity in this country and create sustainable data systems that shed light on what's happening and to whom. We already know why. I'm Justin Beck. This is Contact World Truth and Health. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Listen to Contact World, the podcast, on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. 